Beginning at verse 12 then, So then, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of sonship when we cry, Abba, Father. It is the Spirit himself bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Oh, the depth of the wisdom and knowledge of God. His ways are past finding out. Any continuing work is a series of special action. Whatever is done in a continuing way depends upon repeated exertions of power. Now, that general statement helps us to see something of the ministry of the Spirit of God in the life of the believer. For the Spirit of God comes in successive special acts to produce in the life of the believer a greater and greater degree of certainty about being a child of God. At first, that certainty may be rather slight or even absent. But as the ascending scale of values is climbed by the work of the Spirit in the life of the believer, this sense of assurance that I am God's child grows into an ever brighter kind of certainty. We saw it, you'll remember, beginning last week in verse 14. As many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. That is one way to deduce your position as a child of God is to see how he has been leading the general direction of your life toward righteousness and a spiritual outlook. As many as are led are the sons of God. That's a level of assurance. But there are higher levels of assurance than that, and they are described in verses 15, 16, and 17 of chapter 8 of Romans. Here we will see that throughout this section, the Holy Spirit is the predominant actor. It is he who gives assurance to the Christian. He is the great friend, the great assurer. He is an untapped, perhaps unknown potential resource for every Christian to gain the certainty of being a child of God. And as that is gained and known in your Christian life, as you are utterly certain of being one of God's children, there's a new joy and comfort, a new usefulness, and a greater peace in the Christian life. So I covet that for all of you. Well, let's look at these three verses and see how 
the Spirit takes us up this ascending scale of assurance. In verse 15, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of sonship when we cry, Abba, Father. The reference here is that the Holy Spirit at one point in your life produced a spirit of bondage or slavery and fear. Every true Christian has known that sense of dread. That is, whenever we get a look at the unworthiness, the condemnation, the sinful ruin of our own souls in the light of God's searching and majestic purity and righteousness, we are utterly aware of being undone. We are given a spirit of bondage and of great fear because we are under the wrath of God and no other reaction is at all possible than that one. I suspect today that there are many who claim the name of Christ who know nothing of the spirit of bondage and fear. They have never faced the awful righteousness of God's judgment and under his hand have never felt that oppression. Naturally, therefore, it would be difficult for them to feel the certainty of being his child, never having known the awful loneliness of having the wrath of God opposed to them. But we knew it. In Christ, we knew what it was at one time to be under the Spirit's work of fear and bondage, but we have been brought out from that. It no longer describes us. When we were told of our sin and of God's righteous requirements, we trembled before it, but no longer. We have been brought into a sense of sonship. Our being sons of God as a strong foundation. It rests on the incarnation of Christ himself. He became a son of man, taking our nature, that we might become sons of God, taking his nature. Now, it is one level of proof that you are a child of God, that you can take the scriptural verses that describe that and rest in that promise. For example, whenever God gives me the privilege of drawing a new soul toward him in repentance and faith, I show them John chapter 6, 47, He that hath the Son, he that believeth, hath eternal life. And I say to the person, do you believe? Yes. In your heart do you believe? Yes. Have you repented of your sin? Yes. You have eternal life. Now that's a level of assurance. But it's only a beginning level for a new Christian to hold on to that verse. Now is given the sense of sonship in which the Spirit of God shows us that God is not a distant God, but that He is God at hand. He begins to unfold in our heart a feeling of being family with Him closeness, the feeling called by the Puritans the filial feeling, that is, that I am God's and he is mine. 
Then is fulfilled the word of scripture, I will make them my sons and daughters. Now we have too long in our generation had a feelingless faith. And we've said to people, simply take it by faith. It doesn't matter whether you feel anything or not. But this is far from the word of God. We're told here that we receive the spirit of sonship, which is the sense of belonging to our Father God. And there comes forth from us then very naturally the cry, Abba, Father. Immediately we begin to speak to him because as John Preston said, there's a kind of familiarity develops between the eternal God and the believer. And we can say to the majestic and eternal and all-righteous God, Abba. That is, in a term of great endearment and closeness, we can gather him to ourselves. And we sense the manifestations of his fatherly love and his fatherly care. And he begins to open for us with foretastes the glory that is to come of immortality and of life with him. He begins to mold and shape our life so that we more and more take on the image of Christ in our speech and attitudes. This is the sense of sonship. These are ascending degrees of assurance. Do you know the sense of sonship? Or are you still resting in simply the logical proof based on Scripture, which is assurance at one level, but God says, come on now, let my Spirit produce in you a feeling of being family with me. Do you know it? Seek it. Then in verse 16, the scale continues. It is the Spirit himself bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God. This is the work of the Spirit in bringing a witness first to our own hearts. That is the Spirit in a very secret and private, hidden way, says to the believing heart, you are mine. He works upon the mind and the heart of the believer in such a way that he produces a certainty and an absolute assurance of salvation in the heart of that person. It is so secret that it is called in Revelation a white stone, a hidden manna, a morning star, the witness of the Spirit. It's not an audible voice that you could catch with a tape recorder, but the witness of the Spirit is the whispering of God to his child, you are mine and I love you. Oh, we cannot pattern this out and tell you how it happens. For the Spirit of God is utterly original with every person. One man is reading the Scripture and a verse is illumined before his eyes and God speaks to his heart in the midst of it. Another man is meditating as he walks. 
And suddenly God seems to embrace him and says, John, I love you. Another person hearing a message has his heart strangely warmed, as John Wesley did. It is what Thomas Goodwin, the great Puritan writer, said. It's the electing love of God brought home to the human soul. Suddenly, God's love is not simply a textbook doctrine, but the heart begins to vibrate. He not only loves, but he loves me, and I am his, and he is mine forever. I can't explain the witness of the Spirit. If you've had it, you know it. If you haven't had it, you don't understand it. Somehow from the life of Christ, maybe that will help. For when our Savior was baptized in the Jordan, the heavens opened, and the voice said, You are my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. The witness of the Spirit to the human Savior he didn't need that, but it was for us. If it had been for the crowd around, this is my beloved son. No, he said, you, you are my son, and I love you. Somehow your soul knows the voice of Christ. I can't describe that. Deep calls unto deep. And your soul will respond to that blessed sound the way the waters of Galilee come down when Jesus said, Peace be still. All the doubts and uncertainties and conflicts and difficulties of the Christian life go placid when Jesus says to you, You're my son. You are my daughter, and I love you. Seek it. Have you had the witness of the Spirit? Do you know what I mean? He not only witnesses to you, but with you. This is one of the greatest dynamisms of the gospel, that the Spirit of, the, of God deigns to cooperate in a joint kind of work with our spirit. It says he is bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God, that is, he somehow joins with the activities of our own life in such a way that he shines upon them and makes them more clear and definite than ever they were before. But if they're not there, he has nothing to illumine. If you have never seen your own ruin without Christ, if you have never felt the misery of your sin and its utter hopelessness, if you've never seen the beauty of Christ's righteousness and your utter dependence upon him, there is nothing within you that Christ can witness with. You'll never have the witness of the Spirit until you repent and receive the gift of saving faith and repentance. Likewise with obedience. If in your life, there's not even a feeble attempt at obedience. If there are no weak efforts to discover and to do the will of God, there's nothing for the Spirit of God to join with in common witness. If there is no faith trying to be strengthened and grow, then what can the Spirit of God light up? 
if there are no exertions of love toward others and expressions of Christian affection, the Spirit of God has nothing with which to witness. But when even in the weakest and feeblest sense we try to do these things, faith, love, repentance, and hope, the Spirit magnifies them a thousand times and gives clear and definite outline. And looking within our life, we say, yes, there is faith. Yes, there's an act of obedience. Yes, here I am growing in love. And that's how the assurance of salvation comes because we know it couldn't be there unless God gave it and we were his children. How blessed is this witness of the Spirit. Once it has come, and it may only come once in your life, it may come several times, it may not come at all. But whenever the Spirit of God witnesses to your heart and with your heart, life is different. There will be great struggles. There'll be heartbreaking disappointments. There'll be times of darkness. Those do not change. But there in the desert of your life is that great oasis, that shining moment when you saw into the heart of God and you knew that your name was written there and that his name is written forever on your heart. Nobody, no circumstance, nothing can rob you of the witness of the Spirit in your being. Its final and real purpose is that you may have utter confidence in being a child of God. Do you see how much the Spirit of God wants you to have assurance? He knows that everything about your Christian life will be more dynamic, more interesting, more fruitful, that your life will have a joy in the Holy Ghost, a peace of conscience, a level of unfailing faith, that all these things will be lifted if you can once have the confidence deep within you which no man can take away, that though you are feeble and frail and your faith falters, you are a child of God. That you know with absolute certainty. That's what the Spirit is doing when he visits you with the witness to your spirit and with your spirit. Now look at verse 17 for a moment. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Here we are, set, we are certified as being heirs of God because we're sons. You know how an heir is treated. He has special care because he's going to have a, an estate. He may be given secrets that others aren't given because he's got to manage these things. He may have extraordinary schooling and training because he has a lot to administer ahead of him. An heir is given this unusual treatment. Now in the Jewish law, only the eldest son was the heir. 
But in Roman law, all children received the inheritance in equal share. And this is the letter to the Romans. So we're going here by Roman law, which says that every child receives the share of the inheritance. Therefore, every Christian receives an equal share of God's inheritance. We are all heirs of God and therefore ought to expect peculiar treatment. We'll have schooling in tribulation. We will have fatherly love. We'll have the secrets of God's kingdom shared with us because we are heirs. Heirs of God. I think one of the great sadnesses of our present day Christianity is that it is so bound to this world. Look through the titles in a Christian bookstore. How to overcome fear. How to get along with family. How to overcome depression. How to manage your money, and so on. 90% have to do with this life. And the suggestion is that the Christian life is a trouble-free, or ought to be a trouble-free life. That's not so. Listen to the words of Peter by the Spirit. Blessed be God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath begotten us again to a living hope. He doesn't tell us he's begotten us to a trouble-free life in this world. That's what we've come to expect. But there is no such promise in Scripture. It says rather that our hope is to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that fadeth not away. For the Christian, the center of gravity is beyond the grave. Over there on the other side of the tomb is where the great hope awaits us. We get spiritual myopia, looking at life right here, examining our Christianity in very small terms, and God has the big picture with eternity unto eternity set before our eyes. And it is in that context that he wants us to see we are heirs of God. We may have great difficulties and pressures and disappointments. That does not change our being heirs of God's eternal inheritance. Joint heirs with Christ. All that the Father has, he has willed to the Son. All is given to Christ. And the reason you and I are heirs is that we are joined to him. And united to Christ, whatever is his is ours. So that our inheritance is certain. As surely as Christ is at the right hand of the Father, so are we heirs of the mysterious inheritance of God. Someday, Christ will lead a great procession into heaven. He will be the captain of our salvation. And going before us, the pioneer and author and finisher of our faith, he will lead the way to the marriage supper, and every one of us will be with him. In spite of ourselves, we who know Christ 
will join him at that dinner and nothing can separate us from that destiny. Oh, glorious hope to be a joint heir with Christ. This last phrase is translated, unfortunately, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. It sounds like our suffering in this world is a condition for being an heir. That's not quite what Scripture teaches. The only condition for being an heir is repentance and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. But I think it'd be better to translate it this way. Since we suffer with him, we shall also be glorified with him. And the point is that if we're united with Christ at the point of his inheritance, if we share all the good things that are in him, we also join him in the intimate fellowship of his sorrows and his hurts and his pains. In fact, they become a sign of our salvation. To have the assurance of salvation is not simply to have warm and enjoyable feelings, that's part of it, but it is also to know that you are passing through the fire for Christ. All that will live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And if your life is not meeting opposition from the world, if there is no place where the world is continually meeting you in opposition and in force, then examine whether you are truly based in and confident in saving faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. For this suffering unites us to him. It assures us of being part of him. And it prepares us for heaven itself. Every knock, every bruise, every hurt you're feeling is shaping you and yours for the glory of meeting Christ and you will be refined and deepened and ready as his servant. Oh, my dear friends, do you remember the words of Jesus at the temple? He that believeth in me out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. Christ wants you not simply to be a complacent believer, satisfied where you are. He wants you to be a fountain believer from whose life come rich and mysterious sources of grace to those around you. You can't have that unless you know the witness of the Spirit in your life. We are commanded in Scripture to seek that witness. Peter says, for example, be diligent to make your calling and election sure. You are not to rest until you have the assurance of being saved. Make your calling and election sure. Wait on God for him to come. With that inner voice, let me give you just these six simple steps toward receiving the witness of the Holy Spirit. One is believe 
that this is God's will for you. Search the scriptures and find these passages that I've spoken of. For example, Jesus said, He that hath my commandment and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me. And he will be loved of my Father, and I will love him, and I will manifest myself to him. Do you want Christ to manifest himself to you? Then you need to seek the witness of the Spirit in your life. Don't be content with logical proofs from Scripture. They are a level of assurance, and they're a beginning base. That's where all of us began. But don't stop there. <clears throat> Ask Christ to give you a greater and greater degree he wants you, you see, not only to be convinced in your mind that you belong to Christ, but to have the warm joy and comfort of knowing his fatherly friendship deep in your life. The third thing I would suggest is seek the knowledge of God and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Open and explore every avenue you can to find out all you can about God and Christ. As you do so, your spirit will be moved toward him and open toward the witness of his presence. You've got to be thirsty if you're going to be filled. And fourth, do everything you can to please him. Everything. There are some things you can do that no one will know but you and God. But he knows, and find those and do them. Do what pleases him. Mortify the deeds of the body. If your body is running away with your soul, put to death that which is earthly within you. No careless Christian life ever received the witness of the Spirit. The life has to be ordered and ready and waiting for God to come and say, you, you are my daughter, I love you. Someone has likened the witness of the Spirit to a father walking along with his child in hand. The child knows that it belongs to the father, but suddenly a great love and pleasure comes into the father's heart and he picks up his little child and he squeezes her and says, I love you. She always remembers that moment. Doesn't happen every day, but that moment was precious. Do everything you can to please God. Seek him in the written word. That is, in Scripture, as you're looking for God and for his blessing, it is amazing how he will take a passage and make it strong and light for you. Years ago, in a time of great perplexity, searching, difficulty, searching the word of God, Psalm 32, verse 8, was brought home. I will instruct you and teach you in the way which you will go. I will guide you with my eye. 
And suddenly the heavens opened. And the heart of a man was opened to the heavens. And I saw that not only was my name written in heaven, but it was written on the very heart of God. And that his name had been engraved in mine. And I heard him say deep within my spirit, You are mine. Oh, nothing can take that away. Come what persecution there may be, what difficulties, who can rob a man of the vision of God? Seek him in Scripture and long for the witness of the Spirit. The Bible says through David, as the heart panteth after the water brook, so panteth my soul after thee, O God. Do you long for the voice of God to be made known to your soul? Are you panting after that? Are you more interested in the daily report from Wall Street? Are you more interested in today's baseball scores? Where is the pursuit and the yearning of your life? If it is for the touch of God upon your soul, it will come and the witness of the Spirit will be given and you will be new life will have a peace and a confidence and an assurance that you never knew before. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Let us pray. We wait before you, O Lord, in humble silence. We have pursued many things, but one thing is needful, the pursuit of God. We've been content, Lord, with so much less than you have offered. And we sense even now your Holy Spirit struggling with our soul to bring us into a place where the witness of the Spirit may be known and felt and loved. Strip us, O Lord, of every attitude, every practice, every resistance, every sin that separates us from you. Tell me, thou art Mine, O Savior, grant me an assurance clear. Banish all my dark misgivings. Still my doubting, calm my fear. All my soul within me yearneth now to hear thy voice divine. So shall grief be gone forever and despair no more for thine. Through Jesus Christ our Lord.